I want to suck your blood in honor of House of Gucci. What's the best worst accent? I'm at Patches. I'm going to go with a recent example, which is Christopher Walken in Wild Mountain Time. I'm not even going to attempt to do an impression. The Walken voice plus Irish accent. That is, it's a, it's a wonder to behold. Hey, it's me, David the Seven. I'm going to go with Mini Driver's Russian singing in the movie Goldeneye. James Bond movie Goldeneye. Uh, and I'm David Ehrlich. And quick note, I, I did a Q&A with Paul Schrader last week, and he was telling me a story about Christopher Walken that I thought was really interesting, which was that as someone, I can't remember who he cited as the source of the story, but Christopher Walken early in his career would learn his lines by typing up his speeches without punctuation so that he could put the pauses in wherever he wanted and it wouldn't be dictated by the flow of the, the sentences. Um, and as a result, that is sort of what accounted for the way that he delivers his lines. He is uh, I, I, I didn't, Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if it's a known, a widely known thing. It was certainly news to me. Um, and I thought it was really interesting. And the way that Schrader told it was was a lot more cogent and detail-driven than the way that I just did. But anyway, uh, I am, of course, going to go with James. I don't want your life, Vanderbeek, from the 1999 <laughs> masterpiece, Varsity Blues. Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then. Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine and, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's it's a podcast. Podcast. Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room 374 and a half. It's Pandemic 88 for the week of Wednesday, November 24th. And on that day in 1966, the Beatles began the recording sessions for Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. It Beatles was 20 years ago today. Who's excited for that Beatles documentary on Disney Plus, the Peter Jackson one? Who's excited? Yeah, I mean, yeah, sure, I'll watch it. <laughs> Beatles documentaries. It's got to be fun, right? Have you seen Peter it, David? Jackson? He likes restoring footage. Have I? No, I saw that I got the email about it today. And then I saw the word series and my brain immediately clicked off because it's just not my problem. Wow. <laughs> well, this was going to be the quarter quell week, but it is oh, not. Uh, Katie's on vacation. And next week, we're actually not going to have a podcast. We will be back with the quarter quell uh, the following week because next week, think we're all going to be at uh west side story when we usually would be recording we all get to see the movie just we're all too cool places. for the podcast this week we're just too movies. cool for the podcast that wait time. dave you're also gonna be at west side story yeah i think it's a monday across the board thing well fun you should come yeah, to new york see it with us we're kind of oh, yeah, in the yeah. uh the final stretch of seeing movies this year i think like all yeah. the, all the heavy hitters are these is this like the last week of seeing new things for you david you're the well, yeah, the one exception to that, and uh, after West Side Story and Nightmare Alley, I think the only movie that I am looking forward to this year is The Matrix. Well, oh, did you forget Ooh, Spider-Man yeah. No Way Home, David? Uh, uh, no, I, I, Spider-Man Home, not on my radar. Uh, but I suppose I will have to see it. Your for spider work, sense is not tingling for this one. It's not. It's not exactly tingling. Even though uh, Tom Holland did call it the most theatrical and most cinematic movie of all time. <laughs> um, I uh, bless his heart. And Where's only less lie? than a year after Cherry, which I was the current. <laughs> That's not. Know, yeah, less than a year. That came out this yeah. year. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, which was currently the year, title right? holder in both those categories. 
Uh, David, do we have reviews or do we get to talk about the many updates to Star Wars Galaxy of Heroes? I got good news for people who love bad news. We get to talk about Star Wars Galaxy of Heroes because we have no oh, new no. reviews. Uh, so let's get into it. Start the clock. Uh, what's going on, Dave? How are you feeling? Well, uh, since we last talked, I've got my Geonosian teams ready for some watch shards. And I've started uh, working on gas, but I took a little side turn patches last week to get Dash Rendar, which is a character that's not going to be useful in any of my teams, but has a sentimental value. I still value. can't visualize had... the gameplay. Is it like how do we? Starcraft? How does one get Dash Rendar? Is he available yet? Oh, uh, yeah, he's on a marquee event right now. Oh, no, I got him. him. I just don't know who the yeah, fuck yeah. he is. Yeah, I got him. Uh, you don't know Dash yeah. the... Rendar? The, then, so Dash Rendar is part of four, uh, one of four characters who will be needed to unlock a new character. They're going to do Starkiller from the Force Unleashed because they're releasing Legends characters into the game now. And so Dash like is one the of the ones. So, which sounds like a fun dog side quest. That would be a fun dog side the, quest. The big news on my end is that I finally, uh, after like sort of half-acidly toiling at this while really focusing on trying to get the uh, Galactic Legend Emperor, got the Beskar Armor Mandalorian. Uh, hey. What am I going to do with him? Probably not that much. I'm still not convinced that the Who knows what you do with any of these people? I still don't <laughs> understand how you play. What do you do? It's you, an RPG. You, could, you got it patches. It's like any RPG, right? You got your five characters, six characters, oh, whatever okay. it is, and they line up on one side, and the bad guys line up on the other side, and you choose what powers they use. They heal, they attack, they use their specials. It's pretty basic. Um, yeah, it's like it's like a Pokemon yeah. through uh, a gambling for adults uh, right. phone game. Gotcha. There, yeah, there, are, there are very many characters. They all have increasingly intricate uh, synergies between them. So people, Dave does this. I, I unfortunately, I would be a much better player at this game if I did, but I don't go on all the YouTube channels and see, you know re- see all the videos about the strategy. But there's no end but, to it. How does it keep no, going? God no. Forever. I mean, because it makes it makes a truly godforsaken amount of money every year. Uh, yeah, so it's the, the grind never around. really ends because they release new characters and the characters they're released in a way that you can't actually get them. Like the first day they're released, you're supposed to either wait six months so you could fully play the character or pay large sums of money. But as Dave mentioned, and as we discussed in a previous episode, uh, Dave went into depth on this. Uh, in our last time we did this, <laughs> they have now sort of separated the... Um, Free-to-play from the pay-to-play players because the Galactic Legends, their defenses are tweaked and the defense penetration. And like It's really categorically unfair to go up against someone who has a Galactic Legend if you don't. So that is still sort of a, a tier that I'm looking to cross. Uh, I've been working and, you know, slowly but surely. I'm just building, I'm building enough good teams that I could hack down a Galactic Le- Legend with like three teams. That's going to be my yeah, goal. It doesn't, it doesn't really work like that in my You're experience. You're hacking me down. Um, the problem is that if there's like one invincible character on a team, especially if it's like a three-person Grand Arena team, they're basically invincible. Oh yeah, in Grand Arena definitely, but yeah. I'm trying to focus more, I'm trying to be more helpful to my guild so I can, oh, I you know, get more shards for like Malak and then eventually All right. gas. And Time yeah. is so, up. But yeah. anyway, this is, this just is to him. finish my thought, I, I, <laughs> yeah, I've been true. working away at getting, uh, for some reason, just because I think I was closest to getting him, I had the most prerequisites, uh, to getting the Galactic em- uh, Emperor, the... Sith Eternal Emperor. Yes. And so I currently, and this has been going on for for months now, and I refuse to pour, like you know, all that much money into this, but um, I have... How much money Eight do you pour six, into it at all? Like $20 a month, maybe. 
um, which is pretty <laughs> reasonable nothing. for someone who has like a gambling addiction or oh, potentially okay. would sure. if I were able to gamble. Um, but uh, I, I have eight of the 16 prerequisites. So I'm making progress, but it is a long, slow grind. When I get him, I got to start all over with someone else. And I, you know, knowing my luck, he's probably the worst of the uh, Galactic Legends, but at least I'll have one. Anyway, well, Book of Boba along. Fett coming up. 20th anniversary of Attack of Clones. I can see some exciting things coming yeah, up. Yeah, the here. only oh, reason yeah, I ever give a shit about these new Star Wars stories, you know, as, especially vis-a-vis the TV stuff, is because I know it's going to meet an influx of new characters. And, and you know, when there's a new season of The Mandalorian coming up, I will, uh, a few months in advance, bone up on my Mandalorian characters on the toilet where I play this game. When yeah, hiding from leave, my a review. Okay. leave a review for this podcast that we could read because Mara Jade's coming uh, to the game as well. And uh, we, Mara we really Jade? Have more to talk about. These people yeah. are not part of canon. Yeah, I don't know who that is. I just told you there are four legends leading up to Starkiller, the ultimate legend. Oh, he just said, said that, Patches. I didn't he know when you said legends. You meant legends. He said that. Jesus uh, yes. Christ. Oh God! Let's talk anyway, about. Let's talk uh, about please, real no, please stop us from talking about this in the future. The power is yours. Only you can prevent uh, review segments that are devoted to Star Wars: Galaxy of Heroes instead of reviews of our listeners. And by you, I mean you, not you as in me. Uh, and please just go on iTunes. The Fighting in the War Room. Leave us a review. You can say anything. We prefer the nicer ones, but it's really up to you, dealer's choice. And if we have even one, we'll be talking about that instead of this. It's what you want. For our first segment tonight, we're going to talk. We're this whole episode just full of new movies. Uh, when television shows, we're going to talk about it's tis the season for just lots of stuff to catch up on this weekend. Uh, Netflix released a, a really good new movie, at least for me. It's called Tick Tick Boom. I believe it is the directorial debut of Lin Manuel Miranda. He has not made a movie before, he just does everything else. So, why wouldn't he make a movie? <laughs> Um, and he happens to make a movie of uh, a musical that I absolutely love. So I'm just staying up front that I, there's no way I'm going into this with like any reasonable sense of, of clarity and objectivity. I'm a hashtag fan through and through of Jonathan Larson's Tick, Tick, Boom, often called Lesser Larson, I would think. I, I grew up knowing this as like a sketch pad for what Rent could be and something that Larson got out of his system as he was kind of flailing and failing and, and not getting his career off the ground in the nineties. Uh, just kind of a personal sketchbook of, of songs that were bursting out of him uh, cobbled together into a musical. What is amazing here to me is that Lin-Manuel Miranda working with screenwriter, Steven Levinson, who I guess whiffed Dear Evan Hansen earlier this year, I did not, see that movie so i shouldn't like i can't say uh how it really is but people did not seem to like that adaptation um but stephen levinson here adapts with miranda tick tick boom um into something fairly transformative this is not just an adaptation of the show at all this is 
telling Jonathan Larson's story uh, through blending the musical with biography uh, and, and kind of reworking the music in interesting ways. There are musical numbers in the movie. There are very uh, earnest, sing-songy Broadway set pieces in this movie. There are moments that feel like they could be Tony Awards interstitials. That's how sappy and <laughs> earnest they are. Um, there's a scene that people may have heard of for the number Sunday, uh, because Jonathan Larson is working at a diner and in the scene, the diner, he's talking about his Sunday brunch shift and the diner transforms into a stage and it's just filled with Broadway legends and they all come out and sing this song that he's imagining. Um, and it is so corny and I was definitely crying and I was just like, wow, this is really hitting me hard. This is theater kid cries at theater kid movie. Absolutely. Um, but then you, ha then you have moments where uh, it's, it's way dialed down and it's, it's a kind of a Jonathan Larson biopic where he is trying to get his first musical off the ground and, and struggling and he can't pay his rent last <laughs> year's rent. Uh, you see where that's going. Um, and, and, and Andrew Garfield is playing every, every mode here because Miranda is cross-cutting between the the real life of Jonathan Larson. He's cutting between the show that Larson is putting on. He is literally putting on Tick, Tick, Boom during the movie. Um, and he's fantasizing about how the music is kind of swirling around his life and, and imagining how memories crisscross into that and how the future could crisscross into that. It's all swirling together, this big musical pot. Uh, this is not a straight adaptation. Even There's even numbers in the movie. There's a big number in the Tick, Tick, Boom show called Green, Green Dress. That is a really a kind of, it is not a great song. It is about <laughs> looking at a woman in a green dress and thinking how hot she is and dancing around her. Um, and it's perfectly fine. And here they wisely like change the number completely. It's kind of like said under his breath and more percussion. And, and they're just changing everything about this to fit this blended adaptation they've created. And it's really intriguing and it's really moving. Uh, and I don't, I cannot possibly say if it's like a great movie, if you, you have are no biased. knowledge of Tick, Tick, Boom. Yeah, I bias, I bias. But what did you guys, did you guys have any knowledge of the show before? Do you have any heartstrings tied to Jonathan Larson's work You're coming into this fresh and is Lin-Manuel Miranda's super Broadway loving uh, love letter to all this stuff work for you? I mean, I agree that this movie punches above its weight class uh, and think, you know, Lin-Manuel Miranda has had a shaky go. Uh, obviously, everything he does is sort of judged on the curve. Uh, he, he, you know, is cursed with with the, a Jonathan Larson level success, um, even greater than Rent ever was, I would imagine. Um, but also lived to sort of enjoy Let's it. Let's say and... Jonathan Larson died before Rent opened. So right. That, and that and. Yeah, and I, you know, I was uh, big into Rant when I was 16, and I saw it on Broadway like five times. Uh, it was the only Broadway show I had interest in at the time, and I uh, was very, very well aware of Jonathan Larson's story. I had the big Rent book that was bound in faux duct tape, and uh, yeah, it's, uh, and, and all that to, is to say, I guess I'm also not in a place to objectively judge this one aspect of the movie, but the only thing, the only place that I thought was a bit wonky were the bookends, the sort of, you know, the movie's metafictional enough to begin with. The narrated bookends right, where yes. they explain 
Yeah, I mean, it's very a pitfall of many like biopics and based on true stories of late. I feel like like I do not want to see pictures of real people. And, but this is even more egregious. This isn't just like a photo of of <laughs> the real Jonathan Larson at the end. It's like five solid minutes on the front and the back talking <laughs> about his legacy and his life. And they imply at the beginning that he didn't live to see the success of Rent and so forth. This is nitpicking, but it does sort of. It contrasted to me just because so much of the meat of the movie in between those bookends is well done. I mean, it's a movie that that uh, is square in the middle of Miranda's comfort zone, but also, you know, not just sort of a, a bunt at his first at bat. I mean, it really feels like a movie that he's one of the few people on Earth who I feel like he's the, been the thinking sort of about to make movie. it. For a really, really long yeah. time, and, and they've been it. visualizing this, and I almost wondered, like, if he will make another movie ever after this, because it just feels so. It, you can see it. You can see it going either way. Um, yeah. I think that's a fair point. I also think that, like, yeah, I mean, I even as a as a rent head back in the day, had very little interest in Tick Tick Boom. I'd never think I heard so much as a note of it. There was just something. There wasn't the same mystique around it. Um, from what I understand of the show, I think the movie expands upon it in ways where especially you know shooting during covid i think a lot of times people were paring things down this is still a small scale film but relative to the source material feels much bigger patches can speak to that a lot better than i can but they also really vividly create in that limited budget and the smallness of the movie a, a palpable sense of early of like 1990 new york um it isn't the hardest thing in the world to do but they do it very well and the side characters and the whole energy of it feels very specific to it it feels very germane to rent um, a show that, you know, obviously is beyond formative for Lin-Manuel Miranda. Andrew Garfield, it's like, this performance is the landmark for theater kids. Uh, theater kids cinema, I think. It's just, like, so the role that he was put on Earth to play, it feels. Um, completely inhabits it from the moment you see him on screen. Hilarious to think that he hasn't really been considered a singer before. Um, there's a funny story about his casting in this movie that... Um, that uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda was talking to someone, maybe Garfield's agent, I don't know, um, considering him for the part. And Lin-Manuel Miranda was like, can he sing? And the guy was like, oh, he can sing like an angel. And then that guy picked up the phone and called Andrew Garfield and was like, can you sing? <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and it turns out that he, yeah, he can sing beautifully. He definitely um, can, yeah. And uh, yeah, there's just a lot of, you know, it's a little messy. It's a little scrappy. It feels like a first movie turduckened around a first musical. Um, which in and of itself is about the writing of a first musical, but a lot of that stuff sort of works to its advantage. Um, it has a lot of, I hate when people say this, but for lack of a better word, it has a lot of heart. Um, it, it speaks to its moment without being consumed Why by do you it. hate people who say that? It's not heart. How, it's just like, what how do you, how do you get mean? away using it here, I should say? Why does it? I don't, I don't get away. I'm just tired. I spent two hours putting my kid to bed, so <laughs> oh, I'm not going to come up with like a better, <laughs> a better and more articulate <laughs> no, way I'm of framing it. No, I'm not grilling you. I'm just, I agree <sighs> with you. I'm just like, oh, why is this, why does this have heart? What, what gives it, it just, heart? Yeah, but yeah, it just, it, it, it feels, you can feel the sincerity. There's enough craft behind it. It's that really sincerity translates. It's really like, yeah. he seems like friends with people. He seems like he loves what he's doing. I, think it I mean, the, but the stuff that the stuff that feels forced is forced in sort of a showbiz way. His relationships with the people at the diner. I mean, it's all broad. You know, do I did I necessarily believe in his friendship with that guy that they had been friends for you know however many decades? Yes and no. I mean, you believe it in, in the songs, uh, the grueling emotion of it at the end. I mean, we won't spoil what happens, but like the, the I believe it emotionally, even if 
the pieces aren't really there for a solid narrative construction. I mean, I think it, it, it's sort of that thing that it casts a spell. It works well enough um, doing what it is. It, it doesn't need to all, you know, add up like clockwork. Um, it relies on the songs. It's, it's what a musical yeah, does. I mean, the songs so aren't particularly... And... I mean, uh... do you, are these great songs, Dave? I mean, the, some of the, the songs are okay. It's the execution of the songs in the movie, I think, that make it good. So, like, I it was, was familiar with Rent growing up, as we all were, but was was in Colorado, so I don't think I, like, saw Rent until <clears throat> much, much later. Uh, I've never seen Tick, Tick, Boom, so I went into this kind of, like, dry, and then, unfortunately, as occasionally happens with Netflix movies, I got, like, interrupted, like, 20 minutes in. And had to like take a three hour crap spate doing something else. Yep, three hour crap. And then uh, come back and like finished it off. And when I stopped and paused, I thought that it was like way too manic. It was the sort of thing that I was expecting from Lin Manuel Miranda, which was like a theater kid making a movie about a show about writing musical theater. And I'm like, too many levels of meta, but not enough of it working really uh with itself to forward the movie when i came back to the movie and actually you know watched all of it uh i was able to see how um i think the first time it really clicked into me is there's a song about arguing with your girlfriend while he actually has like an argument with his girlfriend while he's trying to write like the second act song that he's trying to you know uh get specifically right and intercutting between that like ridiculous song that's performed amazingly by uh, Andrew Garfield and Vanessa Hudgens and the actual dramatic moment, the more the movie's able to juggle that beyond what a theatrical performance is able to do or like, you know, using quieter moments to communicate character, uh, like some of the concluding songs, um, I think is when it really clicks into working completely as a story and like after those highs i get what we're talking about where it just sort of like works because it has like weird heart because i also didn't necessarily care for the yada yadaing at the beginning and the end yeah yeah with the story because it's, it, it's of course because it all kind of works I mean, without it this film about turning 30 and feeling like you're running out of time, which is obviously something, maybe not the turning 30 part, but the running out of time thing that Lin-Manuel Miranda understands um, and uh, expressed in Hamilton. But it's, it's you know, it, that, that poignancy is obviously made all the more poignant by the knowledge that Jonathan Larson uh, really was sort of running out of time. I mean, it's, it's hard to imagine that he wrote this musical unaware of his own impending death because it really feels in hindsight like, um, someone who was trying to beat the clock um, and didn't realize how much, a little time rather, he had left. Um, and that obviously gives it a special charge and I think gives license to Lin-Manuel Miranda to add another layer to the the musical. Um, I think, which, you know, I mean, to that point, what you were describing, Dave, what's interesting about the original show is it's only three people. Uh, it's only John and Michael and Susan who are in the movie, but they're speaking parts. And then we get two singing actors, Vanessa Hudgens and this other person I'm less familiar with and whose name I do not have right in front of me, but um, they, they're they singing the parts and they're living tick tick boom. And they're also part of his uh, big Suspiria or Susburbia uh, production that he's going to put up at 
playwrights or something. And and I, I like how there's layers of the film that way. There's, he kept the actors who are the friends as dramatic parts and then kept singers like adding that second layer uh, and then being able to crisscross that. That's a total invention for the movie. Or then that big uh, female solo song that he eventually needs right. to write. He does write it. But in the movie, it becomes a duet between the woman performing it and the person he imagines performing it. And it works amazingly. And so I think it's like when it leans in, uh, it is, I think, meticulously built, even though some of it feels like I did not care for the Sunday sequence as much as you did, Patches. I think it really, the movie really clicks in after that. Uh, But when it does, it's like uh, Andrew Garfield's so good because the movie's already dealing with emotions on the base level, you know, like diner friends that are going to be important later, but... On a musical theater level, it's also heightened that when the movie's able to get movie distance to him and his performance is still Broadway projecting, uh, it's really, really powerful. And uh, powerful is not the word. It's it, it looks accurate without like being. Um, it's it's not an impersonation uh, of. Uh, Larson, but it's also this performance could be like the Joker. You could just be doing the most all the time, and this one gets a little bit more dialed uh, than than was is necessary, which I, I appreciate it. I don't know if that was a weird weird way to try to express something. No, I think that's that's totally fair. Um, yeah, I, I guess I was just I was really bracing for something messy and bracing for something that felt like a sketch like tick tick boom the musical is often described as uh you know i i know the songs really well but i have only seen the show once and the show is fine it's stitched together in the similar way that we see it in a movie um but it really comes to to life i'm glad that probably true to larson lin-manuel miranda felt like he could go places with this it's more of a tribute it's transformative um, and it's really effective. I, I feel like there are a lot of, I, I even think of In the Heights, which we talked about earlier this year, which is much more straightforward. It's, it's a classic musical mode, but I don't think it's very inventive. Um, and, and the kind of is flat because of that. And here, I think there's a lot of uh, emotion, meta emotion and mm. ingrained emotion in this movie. And I, mm. I loved it. I had a great time, even at home. Know. I, I don't know about the in the heights shade. I think that in the heights oh, is, is, is a lot of <laughs> is a lot of strength. I think, and also you know, just as a, a note on in the heights performance that the last it, it struggled for me one of the first out of the gate and coming out of the HBO Max day and day experiment. Not one of the first, but kind of towards the first end, and also underwhelming expectations after a year plus of hype. But when you compare, it's Receipts is this is sort of big bomb to the performance of recent HBO Mac films like King Richard, which was ballyhooed and will continue to be, and I think is still in position to get a lot of attention award season time. Uh, I think In the Heights got a really raw deal, and the narrative around it is this sort of failure or bomb is misplaced, and it's going to be on my end of the year list. I'm pretty sure. Well, I thought it was. The I didn't like it back in the summer that much either. So I'm. Well, you are mind. a damn fool. So let's move on. Tick, tick, boom. It's on Netflix. Right now.
This is the life of Boba Bobo. This is the life of Boba Bobo. This is the life of Boba Bobo. Bohemia. Showers in the kitchen, there might be some soap. Dishes in the sink, but your teeth if you can cope. Toilets in the closet, you better hope. That David, might... did you see? You just mentioned King Richard. Uh, it, bombed. Sure did. it bombed in theaters. Uh, I don't know if that matters. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't movie, know if it matters either. <laughs> Will Smith movie where he plays Richard Williams, the father of Venus and Serena Williams, a movie they produced. They wanted to make this movie. There's exactly. So much produced, weird yeah. discourse out there about why. Why did this movie get made? Why isn't this the Venus and Serena biopic? Instead, it's oh the dad's God. movie. And I'm no, like, but there's not a weird discourse. And I think this it's pretty just, clear from the movie. Why? There's one tweet that becomes like a, a fucking Christmas tree to reference this week's Succession episode for people to hang shit on. And uh, it all gets out of control. Well, anyway, but, um, King Richard is the movie we got. And it is an inspirational sports biopic about getting a shoe deal. Um <laughs> And it is very inspirational. It's very much about getting a, a sneaker. Um, but da- David, what is this? It bombed, but is this going to prevail long term? Well, the only, like the only relevant thing movie? about it bombing to me is that, you know, the most immediate word that people, myself included probably, if I went back and looked at my review out of the Telluride Film Festival, the word that people associate with a movie like this is crowd pleaser. And if there are no crowds, who is it pleasing? But uh, it... I start. I feel like even more than recent HBO Max day and date films, it is being watched. I can only speak anecdotally about the people I know about my mom, uh, which is really uh, a bellwether. He's gonna clean up over Thanksgiving. Um, this is the that, yeah. I mean, it is. Family. But like, I know so many people who have seen this movie, um, and obviously, it's a it's a tiny anecdotal sample size. But it did feel like the people, the kind of people that don't usually rush to see new films in theaters or at home. I uh, made a point to check this out. So I don't know uh, how much good that's going to do for it, but I do think that it's still going to get some attention going forward. It is very much a classic cable TV movie, but an exceedingly well-made one on par with something like Miracle or uh, The Way Back. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that there are all sorts of uh, relevant elements to it that people are warming to that you don't see in a Miracle or The Way Back particularly about its portrayal of black families. I mean, they grow up in, um, in, uh, in California and in, in, in Compton, uh, in in, uh, unfortunate circumstances. And, uh, you know, there is for all of Richard Williams eccentricities. Um, he really goes to bat for his family and, and changes the narrative that people have the assumptions that white America has for them. Um, his yeah, really, the are... big thing he needs to overcome is letting them do more. Like he's so he's protective. He wants them to go to school and get straight A's and be coached. But like, I think one of the main problems Richard faces is that oh, he actually should let them be superstars. He should let them go play and be themselves. And he's well, overprotective, you know. which I find. I mean, it's, it's kind yeah, of but it's also you know what they're balance what they're what he's balancing against here is like the amount of work and commitment that it requires to sort of flip the script for yeah. you know, the family that he's raising and the uh in the situation in which he's raising them and who they are and how people see them um he does sort of have to overcompensate and um how do you thread the needle between doing that but also being a um grounded loving responsive father to your children and not just turning them into machines to sort of uh you know, turn your way out of the socioeconomic situation that they're in 
And it's an interesting needle to thread in a semi-fictionalized setting. I mean, I think that I'm wary of any authorized biopic. Um, I do think that the media has been, and there are so many examples of this you can look up, has been uh, very guilty of sort of demonizing Richard Williams and his efforts to do that and, and sort of underestimating Venus, who was first out of the gates, and then later Serena um, across the careers. And so I think there was sort of a conditioned negative response to Richard Williams that this movie exists to push back against to a certain degree. Um, but there are also a number of elements in his life that are brushed over, as there are in many biopics, particularly biopics that are, you know, quote unquote, crowd pleasers. Uh, the movie conveniently drops a few major, major bombs in one end of the second act or early third act uh, fight scene between he and his wife. Um, it omits the fact that she has been his ex-wife now for quite some time. Um, right, this is not is a complete relationship. Of, uh, he is now in a relationship with somebody. There's a, there's a first no, wife that's like, not in it and a third wife who's not in it. Yeah, <laughs> and then, like, that's fine. I mean, yeah. I certainly, you know, morally, whatever. But, like, I think the ideas that the movie is stressing about, uh, particularly in regard to, like, his view of family and their their unity and whatnot and, like, how responsible they are to one another are a bit shakier in light of the fact that he blew up this family uh, for a younger woman as soon as Venus became successful and a much, much younger woman. And, um, and you know, and I don't, whatever, I'm, I'm not judging yeah, him as a man. It can, hold it it can be him, interrogated like it, it by does, the facts, but within the yeah, context of the movie. It, within the context of the movie, it drama works. Drama is effective. You know, it's yeah. it's straight down the middle. Like every scene hits a number of really satisfying, obvious beats. John Bernthal shows up as their coach. Oh he has a really fun so character. I gotta um, give a shout out girls, to uh, Anjanue Ellis, who plays she's his, great. his wife, and she's just like I actually worked on an indie film with her ages ago, and I and I, I wasn't too aware of her, and she's really just like she's always around. She's in so many good things. I feel like she's never gotten the time of day or the, the spotlight. And even here, she doesn't have too many scenes, but there's a great scene where she's training the girls in a, in a montage. And of course the scene that you mentioned where she's kind of confrontational uh, with, with Richard over his life. I mean, that scene carries that, a lot oh, man, of weight that in scene this is movie. Awesome. Um, she's and, great. Yeah. I mean, and, and the, the girls are like really all of the girls who play his daughters, particularly the actresses who play Venus and Serena are excellent. Um, and, the tennis yeah, I mean, is like a, really good. The I tennis actually think is that great. The, the way they shoot. I mean, we haven't <laughs> mentioned who directed this movie, uh, Ronaldo Marcus Green. Marcus Green, yeah. I have not seen Joe Bell. I didn't hear. I haven't seen Joe Bell either. That. I had not that much interest. <laughs> yeah. um, but he. But, I mean, this movie is completely. I mean, it looks beautiful. Robert Ellsworth, who shot There Will Be Blood, uh, shot this movie, and it looks yeah. really good. Uh, and the, the tennis, I was like. I had to go watch YouTube clips right away and just watch matches because I thought it was so comfortably put together and, and realistic in just terms of like the power and the grace and like yeah. I, I really and like, like the tennis. I love tennis. It's it would be <laughs> wrong to sort of um, discount the the craft and the vision that it requires to make something that's this satisfying down the middle, this kind of like forehand winner of a movie, so to speak. I mean, the, it, it is not easy to make it look as easy as it looks here, and. Will Smith is making some very big choices, and those choices may end up being too big. But my sort of argument around the movie when I first saw it is that Will Smith cannot play a normal human being. 
Um, he hasn't been able to play a normal human being almost ever in his career, and that ability has only gotten further away from him as he's about Deadshot. More, more he, of a brand. He's just a father yeah. of a daughter. Uh, yeah, yeah. Very Deadshot's just a man, you know, man on the street. He's but, just looking uh, out for his kid. Yeah, um, but and, and so I think you know, not only is Richard Williams, I would say, not a normal human being. He was a heightened character in real life, but I think Will Smith needs to heighten him that much further in order to better inhabit him and sort of make him this cinematically viable character. And he does that. Um, and I think the movie, as as big a swing as that one element of it can be, I think the rest of the movie is able to exist on a more even keel without having to sort of like rise to the level of what he's doing. Um, and so it works and he does feel unusual. You, you understand why people look at him askance beyond just the, the sort of racial assumptions that are made and also the more interesting nuances more interesting nuances of his relationship with his daughters who love him and sort of understand his authority but at the same time are wary of him overextending it and are cognizant of their love for each other and the role their mother plays in all this he also and rips so I think a that like it does in the movie let's should we talk about I don't that remember you don't remember I when don't he rips remember. a big fart in the movie I mean it's it's vaguely it's like he's wheeling and Okay, they're at a, a fancy club, mostly white people, and who walks over but Dylan McDermott as some like yes, Nike I mean, broker or some yeah trying to strike a deal, and they're they're mentioning like oh it's amazing how far you've come considering everything, and the, you know right. it's interesting how they deal with with race in the movie. There's a lot of like actually black on black violence and kind of the white insinuation that these black people must have come from like a hard place. And this really pisses him off. Like there's nothing, you know, they watched the Rodney King uh, protest and beating uh, on, on TV and they confront race in, in that way in the world that they're living in. But, you know, there's no like blunt Hollywoodized moments of racism in this movie. It's all pretty insidious. And when he confronts these people who are just like assuming because he's black, he must have come from a, of a challenging place. Will Smith just rips a fart. Now, I don't know if it was, you know, it was a real fart or was it added in post, but I'll, I gotta say, a movie that... No, they, they did the lame all, <laughs> all farts were great, were captured live. Uh, Dave, it's effective. It's effective. I did not see Kick Richard, no. I'm gonna have to be one of those people that picks it up in the Thanksgiving schmaltz. Yeah, I mean, there's I I sort of see what Matt's saying about them not Holly. It, it doesn't go like the full blind side, but no. it, it is not exactly subtle. But I don't think it would have been a better movie if it were subtle or necessarily. I mean, it is what it is, and it is what it is very well. And uh, it, it's 140 minutes breeze right by, and it, it does give you a clear sense of the tenacity of this man, his family, and what he was able to achieve for them by hook or not by crook i mean but just by you know there was definitely some emotional fallout from his all or nothing um you know approach to them becoming tennis stars uh i mean this was their life there there are like questions of like you know he has a, a plan in place for their entire lives before they are born and they are given very little flexibility about what they can do with their lives right, there's a scene where he comes into has, the girl's room and they're all all the girls share one room and a few of them are sharing the same bed. And he comes in and he's like, don't worry, we're going to make millions of dollars soon because you are going to become superstars. And I don't know if the movie yeah. 
challenges him on those grounds necessarily. Or, I mean, or, it's one of those things where it's like, hey, it worked out really well, so everyone looks. Yeah. Uh, I mean, literally, like the title card at the end says, and then and then Venus made twelve million dollars from Reebok. <laughs> like, yeah, okay, great. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of jockeying over their worth, their like actual worth as uh, their financial worth, rather as as. Um, Santa stars and if the the deals they're being offered are commensurate with the deals that white players were offered who are similarly young and coming to their own careers and um and Richard Williams is very adamant that his daughters not be undervalued uh but yeah I mean there are questions as a parent of a almost two year old I'm like you know is there what are the oh, yeah how are you gonna um, make money off the, your kid you yeah how am I gonna it? make money off my kid no but like what what are you taking away from a child when you decide what they are going to be before you they are born and then sort of indoctrinate them into being that? Um, and if they don't become the world's greatest tennis players, you know, is it a lost cause? Uh, do you give them an opportunity to be something else? These are interesting questions Richard Williams never really seems to ask himself. And, uh, you know, it all worked out great for him. So <laughs> maybe the rest of us are doing it wrong. Um, but solid movie. Now for weeks, for weeks now, I have not so subtly indicated in our closing segments, some of our opening segments, any interstitial moments whatsoever, that Matt Patches has committed a war crime of some kind. A war crime of the opinion, uh, which is really the only thing that I can describe, uh, the only way that I can describe someone thinking that uh, Netflix's live-action adaptation of Cowboy Bebop is anything less than a war crime itself. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I, just as some, some backdrop, background, for those of you who may not know, uh, Cowboy Bebop, an incredibly, incredibly popular, formative anime uh, cr- created and directed by Shinichiro Watanabe, came out remember in 1998. remember when you first watched it? I remember vividly Swim? when I first watched it, because... Uh, no, I was. Uh, it was old news for me by the time it was on Adult Swim. Oh, I you bought it. the first DVD, the first session, <laughs> session one, which was wow. like for the five episodes ending in Ballad of Fallen Angels, off the rack for a, like truly obscene amount of money that I saved up. Here? No, 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 a DVD. Okay. Nineteen ninety eight. So I had just bought my first DVDs. It was like The Matrix, Cruel Intentions, and then this twenty nine dollars or something like that. It was something ridiculous and. Um, I bought it and I finished the fifth episode the night that I bought it and I was like what the fuck do I do now and I had to wait I know this is unfathomable to the youngins out there I had to wait two whole months for another batch of five episodes some of the DVDs only had four episodes on them and it continued that way for a year uh, before I was finally able where to see where are you buying the show DVDs? from Sam Goody oh from Sam Goody and uh, <laughs> yeah, I would show up on the, the day that they were on sale and save up for I had two months to save up twenty nine ninety nine of whatever odd, you know, money I was stealing from my parents. And um and uh yeah, and it was it was uh I, I felt like I was sort of ground zero for the impact that this series was gonna have on a generation of people who otherwise or previously had not had much interest in anime. Um but the story about these bounty hunters in space in the year twenty seventy one in a future that takes place after a astral gate has collapsed and made Earth effectively unlivable. And so all of humanity 
is really scattered amongst the stars and they're all living in these very cool uh sort of terraformed and domed planets on mars and venus and jupiter um the show true to its name has very uh heavy western overtones with a lot of jazziness thrown in for good measure but it's really sort of a, a stir fry cereal that combines all these various influences into this one very satisfying whole at heart telling this sort of mythic and broadly sketched story about a guy named spike spiegel um, who uh, is is uh, was never really reading to me as Jewish in the show, but I guess is is sort of most inspired by Elliot Gould's performance in uh, The Long Goodbye, who is this very laconic, uh, reformed ex member of the Syndicate, who is now a a bounty hunter. He is one of several people on the ship, the Bebop, who is sort of living uh, in disavowal of their their past. Um, his his colleague in space, uh, Jet Black, great name is another, and they eventually team up with Faye Valentine, who's an amnesiac uh, who woke up from cryosleep and has her whole backstory. She's actually trying to work back towards who she is, but um, and there are other characters. They all sort of traipse around the galaxy, getting into these these very evocative spaces and moments, and there are shots, most shots, I'd say, by this point, from the series that are sort of burned forever in the memories of its fans. Music cues, the music by Yoko Kano is just, uh, I mean, iconic would be an understatement. Um, and, uh, there's also, there's only a handful of episodes that are devoted to the overarching story. Otherwise everything is sort of a one-off, but, uh, that story, uh, I think in part because of how wispy it is, there's a bad guy named Vicious. who was like five lines of dialogue and is defined by his name and his growl and his long gray hair. And he has some beef with Spike. And there's a woman named Julia who has even fewer lines of dialogue. And it's really just an idea, but it's because of that that the story and the energy around Spike has this sort of archetypal power. Uh, and now they have adapted it into live action on Netflix at a budget of what looks like $25 per episode with John Cho <laughs> playing Spike Spiegel. And they have hired a bunch of people who made the Netflix Marvel shows, um, like Daredevil and whatnot, to uh, direct the episodes and Christopher Yost to write them. And they have t- told, I think wisely, uh, have remixed Cowboy Up rather than simply making a faithful remake of the story beats that fans already know by heart uh, and rather than telling completely new stories they've sort of done a little bit of both um and you know Faye used to show up in the third episode now she shows up in the first and they're familiar characters but there's also a whole new backstory because vicious and julia can no longer just be ideas they have to have their own incredibly trite arc about usurping power and he has to now be he's played by alec uh, hassel of the tragedy of macbeth um, who's excellent in that, and it's a Shakespearean-trained actor who is you know, adrift trying to <laughs> ham up this character and find some meat on the bone I don't think of the, the wig's episodes. doing him any favors. Nope. In the um, show. Anyway, I'm going to pass the baton, but I just want to say this was a, a sort of a fool's errand. Um, I don't blame them for trying. I think their hearts are vaguely in the right for? place. Uh, I blame them for everything else. <laughs> I mean, the show, the, 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 really the whole ball game. Is and I actually think the actors are very good. Uh, um, I am was not familiar with either of the actors who played uh, the who played Jet or Faye, but they are both wonderful. I'm trying to make sure that I get their names right because John Cho obviously Mustafa Shakir well. and Daniela uh, Shakir Pineda. And Daniela yeah. Pineda. I mean, Mustafa Shakir in particular is just amazing, and not just because he bears such an uncanny resemblance not to the way jet looked I mean, he's black and jet was white but 
but yes to the way that Jet sounds, but just the whole physicality of him and the energy he gives off, even though he's been saddled with the daughter character, which is a grave mistake uh, for a show about people who are sort of disconnected from their paths to sort of pass to anchor him down. Um, his family he never sees it, whatever. But uh, really the whole ballgame with Cowboy Bebop is its mystique, is its atmosphere, is its a sense of a world that you want to inhabit and that comes with all this emotional energy that's loaded into the sets, so to speak, and then into the, the planets and the spaces they inhabit. And the live-action Cowboy Bebop all looks, as I said, like it was shot um, on a New Zealand soundstage, which it was, uh, but like, like a bad uh, Hollywood studio set. Um, there is absolutely zero sense of place. Uh, everything looks fake. Not for a moment do you believe that anyone is in outer space. And that's even before you get to the direction, which rather than being like ultra stylized um, and cribbing from, you know, everyone from Sergio Leone to John Pierre Melville, uh, just seems like it's cribbing from season two of Daredevil, not even season one, maybe Iron Fist, uh, if I really want to uh, uh, upbraid them. So, I mean, it, it's really just it's feels got a like a little soulless. more going on than any of those shows. It, it really actually just shot on and, New York Street. And the, C, the CG, which are the only moments. I like that you're pretending indulges. you've seen all of these Marvel Netflix shows, by the way, in order to. Use I watched every episode you are a liar. of <laughs> Daredevil season one and Jessica Jones both seasons. Thank you okay. very much. Okay. Um, and Neither, uh, these are the, not the uh, shows that you referenced uh, as a comparison. Daredevil. Daredevil. You said Daredevil saw, season two and Iron Fist, and you just admitted that you've only oh, seen Daredevil season <laughs> I one. I did specify <laughs> Daredevil Jones. season two, so, but that was just meant to imply that Daredevil season two was somehow worse than Daredevil season you're one, lying. which I had heard that it was, but maybe it's not. Whatever. Um, the uh, but the, the they do lean on CG, which in those moments are able to sort of capture the otherworldliness of the show, but the CG itself looks so <laughs> Doctor Who levelly and bad. Uh, and we haven't even gotten to the writing, and and the words Joss Whedon have been tossed at a lot, a lot, including in my opus of a review. But it is a very convenient shorthand for what they're going for here, you know. And it just couldn't be more removed from the um, to reuse the word from earlier, sort of the laconic samurai spirit of the show. It, it's really just a, a, a re- atrocity, <laughs> and poor uh, um, actors. Dave, step up to the plate. Uh, I mean, I don't like it, but for me, it's like I could forgive, uh, you know, if you're like you're you're entering this project, you're like, we're going to use these characters. We're going to do something else. We're not going to try to make it look like an an anime like fine. It did fine with that. It does stupid uh, like cinematography tricks um, that uh, occasionally made me kind of like roll my eyes but kind of par for the course for a netflix action series i think the problem with this show or this adaptation is that it's neither of those two things that i mentioned it's like that because it has it wants to be uh throwing back to the fandom and things the fandom wants to see uh it somehow comes up with the most obvious way to fill in story for all of those things so like i like how david mentioned that like the first cowboy bebop spikes uh like backstory was like wispy because my introduction to it was definitely on television and it was just like you'd see an episode and it'd be like oh that was kind of like ridley scott's alien and somebody who knew what you were like what the series was is like yeah they've got these little episodic things you know here are the characters and like you could tune in and see a new bounty they're 
episodes like that in this series, but everything that drags it down is based out of trying to make it feel like a Netflix series instead of like what Cowboy Bebop was, which was just like little excuses to have fun and do little like uh, thoughts about loss or like running if you could ever run for your past or whatnot. And it's all been condensed into like, I see something very episodic with like a teaser for the villains that I don't understand what they're doing or if I'm supposed to be menaced by them. And I got about halfway through the series, which has some like good episodes, I think in the back half. The Faye uh, backstory episode with her finger quotes, mother character. That that was like very 80s sitcom for me, but I I do see what people like. I like the flashback episode that actually carves out Julia's backstory no <laughs> that, see I, I don't that, that was terrible the flashback the Come flashback on. episode is so redundant because either we've seen that referenced or we picked it up because we spent so much time with julian vicious up to the flashback episode or immediately after the flashback episode those characters tell each other the revelations <laughs> from the flashback right episode. that seems a little unnecessary um so i'm yeah. I, like i if this was more episodic if there were like tiny arcs uh like i think some of the ones that have been ported over from the anime are okay. Uh, the first episode uh, with the uh, pregnant woman and the guy protecting her, uh, spoilery, but that's also the pilot, I, I guess, of Cowboy Bebop, from my understanding. That kind of like comes across. Uh, the creepy fat clown dude is there. But the Pirellophone episode is just. Oof. I mean, I. Yeah. I, I, I... It, for the purposes of this segment, I'm coming at it from the perspective of a Cowboy Bebop super fan, which is disappointed yes. that it doesn't yeah. live up to how it is in my mind's eye. In my review on IndieWire.com, I was very careful to, you know, explain that it, it, it's not... I was rooting for this show. I was not expecting that it would be possible to recapture the magic of the it's anime. Impossible. I was hoping that they went in another impossible. direction. My problem with it, you know, more in line with what Dave was saying, is that it... it does not become anything else. I think either. that's so, it is it is let me agree with catastrophically you. boring. Okay, let me because especially you. because it completely misapprehends the characters. The idea that the main conflict between Jet and Spike, and there doesn't necessarily need to be one, is that Jet doesn't know that Spike used to be in the syndicate, which is invented for this version of the show. It is absurd and completely counter to the spirit of not just the original show, but what's happening in this version of the show, that that would matter at all. And that the really the thing binding them together, the thing that makes them work as a you know, barely functional unit from episode one, not something they have to earn at the end of the Fellowship of the Rings, but something that is there and baked into the form from the beginning, is that this is a safe space for them where they are able to sort of accept the present and who they are now and forgive them whatever mistakes they made in the past. I mean, Spike doesn't grill jet for being like a, a bad father. I mean, he's like annoyed about hearing about his kid, but like, you know, they, they don't, they don't hold each other to account for who they were because they understand that everyone is sort of mutually running from something and trying to build this present together. And the fact that the show doesn't even understand the most basic element of what galvanizes characters together suggests that it was in the wrong hands to begin with. Let me, and, let me inject myself into this. Um, because I'm not, I'm not like high on the show, I should say. Uh, of my war crimes, it will only be 
don't know, are there levels of war crimes? Like, like third degree? Well, yeah, the Hague, we do have the Hague tapped into the Zoom call, so they are taking notes <laughs> okay, in real good. time. Thank Be you. Yeah. Please dish out the phone. At the end, um, I think that the fundamental problem with the show is that it's stuck in the mode of the of the old show, that this show that they've created is not jazz, and that the original anime is jazz, and that it can be melancholy and it can swing at the same time, and that is a quality of jazz, and, and the logic of jazz, and the rhythms are, are allow it to do so, and that this is like, I don't, I don't know, I don't necessarily know what the timbre is, for this, if it's like Skrillex or something, I feel like this is this is try, reaching to be Scott Pilgrim and what Edgar Wright does um, with pop music, and that the music is actually wrong. I know that there was a lot of talk from the showrunner when I did this big preview on, on Polygon, where we got into this a bit, where it's like we would not do this show without Yoko Kano, and I I get that impulse, but I actually think it keeps the show back in a significant way that the jazz and what they've created here does not compute. Um, and it what, hurts that so, there isn't a single memorable new cue in all of these. Been, hours I think television. it's really strange. I think that it was really odd and it's very telling that they couldn't find a new, they couldn't write a new cue for an interesting set piece. I think when this show really does well and that it could have found its voice and I hope it does in like a second season when maybe it will oh, no. absorb Why would you want John Cho to waste me, another eight let, months of his life? Because I, stuck I don't in think John Cho is actually like that great. I, you know, I think he does certain things very well. I love him in Columbus. He smokes cigarettes very well. After Columbus, I definitely see why he <laughs> cast him in Cowboy Bebop. But let me let me make one point here, which is what this show does well. Like my favorite episodes are the, the first episode. And the third episode, Dog Star Swing, um, where Jet is trying to find a doll or he yeah he's finding trying to find a doll for his daughter i know you do not like the daughter invention here but the like the 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 point a to point b to point c stuff like accomplish the mission get the heist rick grab the MacGuffin. that stuff is fun and it swings and it swings to its own beat and i think christopher yost is actually a big part of this he wrote the premiere he did not write many other episodes except for the third one uh and he is an animation oh. writer he is uh uh, comic book writer, and I did think he sketch his, out the yeah. did he sketch out like the arcs for the series? Because otherwise, I I, I really uh, painted I a lot of blood on his hands in my review. I don't really know. I mean, I think what's interesting is showrunner Andrew Nemec and the guys that he worked with at this company, Midnight Radio, who all share producer credits on this, like Jeff Pinker, who wrote a lot of the like amazing Spider-Man movies, and they're all Fringe people, right? They come from Fringe, they come from Zoo, that CBS show. They write CBS shows and it's really interesting that they did this because i think they tried to cbsify cowboy bebop i think that this show probably goes over really well with a different type of mainstream audience that has absolutely no attachment to the original cowboy bebop bebop mm. and and tries to use the iconography and use the flavors to create something cartoonish and i wish it was actually more of what christopher yost brings to the table this like oceans 11 cartoon energy Scott Pilgrim-esque heightened bizarre world, but the jazz does not fit the soul of Cowboy Bebop. Trying to bring it to this project, like just strip Cowboy Bebop for parts and make it something totally new, it would be less offensive and it would struggle less than what this show is, which is caught between worlds. Um, yeah, I think so what, you, what you said is like the, the actors are the ones keeping this alive. They're the only thing in the in the show that has like an intact soul. Um, 
Yeah. They're the only thing that's consistent in the show, and they're 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 consistent in a boring way. I, I find it weird that the but show it's... gets so graphic and violent. Like it has no tone. Why is the show so mm. fun? And then all of a sudden, people are getting shot up and blood spurting everywhere, or Vish is like stabbing someone in the chest, or like oh, it gets why, why, why do we? It's weird. Yeah. Why are we having like bukkake conversations? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Like a, oh, a yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just like they they completely misapprehend the cool, the kind of cool that the show is tapping into, or that the source material is tapping into. Um, this is, couldn't be further removed from. From you know Philip Marlowe or uh, uh, The Long Kiss Goodbye or any of that stuff, Raymond Chandler. I mean, and any, that's of, okay, any of the vibes. Except it's still but yeah, hanging it's fine, on to that, that in some way. I'm as a trying to, point. and that's a problem. I was trying to watch, you know, imagine what it would be like to watch the show from from someone who is unfamiliar with the property, someone who is down with with you know television that looks like it's on CBS. You know, someone who watches NCIS on purpose and not just because they've broken their leg and they're in the hospital overnight and that's just all that's on and they can't reach the remote. Which for me is really the only scenario <laughs> under which I'd watch NCIS. And uh I just I I think that because it's neither fish nor fowl, they wouldn't be interested either. I think that it's it's too busy trying to be this other thing that it can't be, but so far away from becoming that thing that no one is gonna be satisfied. I think that if you're watching this, just looking for something to pass the time, and you don't mind something that looks like a you know a, a space age jag, you're just like, ah, it's kind of boring. Like, why do I care? Where? Like, you're gonna watch half an episode before you realize that they're on Mars. <laughs> like, wait, what? <laughs> like, there's just and, and and none of these characters have the sort of cool that that makes you want to lean in and watch them closer, like they did originally. I think that that kind of person sees Ed show up in the last few seconds as invariably they, they would, as anyone could predict um, in the sort of streamification and bizarre way that stories work now. And they're like, <laughs> what the fuck is this? Like, you know, and, and yeah, Ed is, uh, I, I really like Ed as a character from Bebop. I was just rewatching Bebop and like, I'm, I'm big on Ed. Uh, this Ed, you know, feels, we only get a few seconds of seeing them. So it's hard to say if they got an actual arc or scenes to play, it may be different, but the way they're introduced suggests that there's like a a version of this series. That's always on that tone that I would like, like make this series for like 14 year olds. I'm fine with that. Like, you know, but I, I think that would have been at least like choosing a tone and like, you know, then we're doing like basically the Mandalorian, like great Mandalorian with a Corgi or Welsh. Yeah. Corgi. Anyway, so it's like, but the, like Patches was saying, it's kind of toneless. And even in the arc of the entire series, like the last three episodes are all like, time to deal with Spike's backstory now. And it's like, oh, okay. Like, that seems kind of antithetical to the rhythm that we were working on. And like, oh, it's, 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 I think it, I really think it's just bad writing. Really? Yeah. I just, I, I have seen the show done better actually this show bruce campbell made two straight to syndication the sam raimi esque you know sam raimi and those guys invented the hercules and xena properties they went to new zealand they shot a million episodes they figured out a format that could feel big uh and do it like star trek did but for fantasy and then they made bruce campbell's show uh jack of all trades you ever you ever see jack of all trades or adventures of briscoe county jr his kind of like not quite back to back 
uh, syndicated TV shows, but Jack of All Trades is just like this, but more fantasy. And I, I think the first episode of Bebop does a really good job of being self-contained and having like, it's going to be a total Desperado Robert Rodriguez riff almost. Um, That's why it's in the Desperado bar. Yeah. And keeping it and keeping it small actually, and keeping it adventure forward and being almost episodic. Like, that's what Jack of all trades did really well. It had a cartoon attitude. It could be a living cartoon. Um, and, but you need a guy like Bruce Campbell who can, who's almost cartoonish. His mere presence is cartoonish. No one is playing the same tone in the show. And then the show itself is trying to swing to the original tone and something new and heightened. Like why not just go all in on one direction? I don't think, I think people would be less offended if it had nothing to do with the anime. It's so unfortunate, but it actually it has delightful moments. And there's a corgi, and I love corgis. Yeah, I mean, there, there are uh, this. This would be easier to dismiss if it was straight out bad the entire way through. But it's. Uh, I was only, I was only sort of, you know, nodded over the badness of the idea of it. Uh, the execution, I think, is abysmal. I, I wrestled went back and forth with, with what they're trying to achieve here conceptually, um, you know, what they're, they're going for, what they're able to do, the reasons why something like Cowboy Bebop should be, demands to be revisited. But it, I, I think, you know, everything that actually winds up on screen is real rough. And just to disagree with something that Patch has said about wanting a second season, I don't think there's any hope here. There is no sort of redemption for this show. I mean, short of completely nuking season one, getting uh, Netflix to treat it like a one of its prime properties, a, a The Crown, The Stranger Things, injecting, you know, seven times the budget into the show. But you know what? That's, I um, think the opposite. I, I think it actually needs to be cheaper, and that would make it better. Fine. But I think that, these, you know, all, all three of these actors, uh, include, well, even more than that, I mean, also um, Alex Hassel playing Vicious, uh, need to get away from the stink as soon as they can, but they're also sort of in the prime of their careers. John Cho you know, has entered a new phase of his career post-Columbus, I think, of all things. I mean, that really sort of uh, opened the door for him. He's brilliant in that. And um, he's about to be in another indie movie uh, directed by Hannah Marks, and that could be another breakout for him. Uh, you know, I, I would love to see this cast sort of take their credit and cash it in somewhere else. Um, I would really not want to see them have to spend another seven or eight months down in New Zealand working on the second season of what's sure to be a terrible continuation of the show. So uh, get them out of there. I'm wishing but I want to see them. I want to see them. I want to see them all just in other things. Ah, I, I, I have hope here. I don't know. I, I, I do see potential and that is such good casting. I just think it should actually be cheaper and it should be like episodic and it should be go shoot it on in real places and just go to New Zealand. It has every environment you need and, and go have Monster of the Week adventures. That's the joy of, of the original anime is, is it being episodic and not being too big. Uh, this show is spending too much money. To think that it needs to be to look like The Mandalorian is, is so foolish. Scale down. Just be character driven. How much more down could they possibly scale? It looks like something that I made in preview on my computer. I mean, it's, it's grim. Uh, I don't, I, I don't know how much worse it could look. I do think <laughs> that if it did look considerably, if it really went into amateurs territory, 
Um, it would at least give it some personality rather than sort of the black hole of personality that it has now. And so by that logic would be better, but um, I don't think it's worth trying. <laughs> Alrighty, that's going to do it for this week's Fighting in the War Room. Reminder, next week, no episode. Week after that, Quarter Quell, where you will, we will be discussing 127 hours, Limitless, Water for Elephants, and Super 8. So, happy Thanksgiving uh, from all of us. Uh, You can watch those movies. Uh, you got you got two weeks, or you know, wait and see what we have to say about them uh, when we return. Until then, uh, who are you people? I'm Matt Patches, deputy deputy editor at Polygon.com. I'm on Twitter at Mr. Patches, and we have a website, FightingInTheWarroom.com, where you can listen to old episodes. Several of the past ones have David insinuating that I liked Cowboy Bebop, maybe more than I did. I don't know. I'm in the middle. Uh, but you can also just go back. Maybe we've been talking about the anime at some point. I'm not sure what the reason would have been, but I hope for us uh, we enjoyed ourselves talking about it at some point. Fightingintheworm.com. I'm David Ehrlich. I am. Uh, I am who I am. I'm someone who did not care for comedy pop. I. Uh, <laughs> I. I'm what I work for IndieWire. You can find me writing about things. I did my publish my review of. The house of Gucci. It's time to take out the trash. It's time to take out the trash. It's it's time to take out the trash. Yeah, there we go. It's getting closer. I had it a few weeks ago. Um, yeah, what else am I writing about? It's Thanksgiving. Hopefully not all that much. Uh, but you can find us all, including Katie, on iTunes at Fighting in the War Room. Go on there. Leave us a review. We'll read it live on the show at the top of the episode, word for word. And we'll do that rather than talking ad nauseum about Star Wars Galaxy of Heroes, uh, which is a criminal enterprise that I happily participate in. And I'm Dave Gonzalez. You can follow me on Twitter at DA7E. You can follow Katie Rich on Twitter at K-A-T-E-Y-R-I-C-H. Yes. And you can follow us all on Twitter at F-I-T-W-R, where you could answer this week's lightning round question, which was, in honor of House of Gucci, what's the best worst accent and that's it see you next week no 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 not next week the week after next week quarter quill quarter quill bye